heavily, I'm a clown. Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, or if you're just listening for the first time, welcome to the show. This is a podcast about Bitcoin where we cut out all the noise and focus on interesting interviews with interesting people who understand Bitcoin and talk about everything from the nuances to the economics to the tech. This will be episode 13. This is an interview with the lead lightning network architect over at Lightning Labs, Alex Bosworth. This is an awesome interview. It is full of so much, just little tidbits of great information. Alex is a wealth of knowledge. I'm probably going to have to listen to this several times over just to take in everything that he said. So I think you guys are going to really love this. Before we get started, if you're interested in learning more about the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, we have a website. Just go to bitcoinechochamber.com. You can find all of our episodes there, or you can find us on any of your favorite podcasting services, Anchor, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc., etc. If you guys want to reach out to me, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at heavilyarmedc, that's the letter C, or you can drop me an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. All right, guys, let's get this started. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Alex, how you doing, man? Hey, good. Thanks for uh, talking to me. Thanks for coming on the show. It was not the easiest thing in the world, but you know, I was finally able to get you on after trying for a couple weeks now. So if you guys don't know uh, who Alex is, Alex, can you give us a little bit of background on what you, who you are right now and, and what you're doing? Uh, sure. I'm Alex Bosworth. Um, I'm currently the um, Lightning Infrastructure Lead at Lightning Labs in San Francisco. And um, I'm working on kind of like the uh, back-end infrastructure and routing network services side of the Lightning Network. Um, uh, I started uh, last year in September. And before that, I was working on a project uh, called Submarine Swaps, um, which are a way to bridge uh, on-chain payments, on-chain transfers with uh, Lightning payments um, so that you can... uh, you can atomically pay from one side to the other side. And then before that, I worked at this company called Bitco in Palo Alto. And Bitco is a uh, kind of like a uh, exchange backend services company. Um, I worked there on uh, investigating lightning at Bitco. And I also worked on this project, which was a um, private blockchain project that was a fork of BTCD. I was uh, like working on the, the chain software. And that was uh, to um, help the Royal Mint of England um, tokenize their gold uh, deposits um, and then build a market for that on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Oh, wow. That sounds Um, interesting. Yeah, that was a lot of that was a lot of fun. And then before that, I um, founded a software company um, where we were working on productivity applications um, on on the mobile and desktop. 
Okay, so how did you how did you go from doing all those things to where you're at now at Lightning, Lightning Labs? Um, the the big jumping off point for me was uh, so I used to live in Beijing. That's where I founded my company, and um, when I came back to the U.S., I knew I wanted to work on Bitcoin stuff. That I was you know I was really interested in Bitcoin, um, and at that point in time, Chaincode Labs was starting this thing called the Chaincode Labs Residency Program. Um, to try to like get people involved in core Bitcoin core development um, and just get people involved in Bitcoin um, And uh, it just happened to line up exactly perfectly that when I came back to the US that they were starting this program So I called them up and uh, I was part of that like the original um, set of people that they uh, the Matt Corallo like kind of uh, recruited to the program awesome um, so that was pretty cool and then I was kind of like that was at a kind of a point for Bitcoin where it was you know, it was really like a bear market, and it was difficult to, um, you know, the, 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 the companies involved in Bitcoin weren't exactly, you know, hiring too many people, but uh, I, I called around, and um, Bitco was working on a new project, and they needed people, and um, they were very involved with Bitcoin, uh, so they ran, uh, like, the Bitfinex backend before, although that ended tragically, and then they, they, they ran Bitstamp and Kraken and other exchanges. So um, I thought that would be a great opportunity to get involved in like kind of like what really goes on in the in the in the economy of Bitcoin. Um, so I joined I joined there um, in 2016. Great. And so when how long have you been in Bitcoin? When did you first sort of start really getting involved? Um, yeah, it's difficult to say like what what counts as being involved in Bitcoin. Yeah. Like I think 2016 is what I count as like being really involved. Um, before that, I was kind of on the sidelines like, you know, interested in it. I thought it was cool. Um, but 2016, when I came back to the US, um, I could really start to be involved in um, kind of the, the actual economy of Bitcoin, the infrastructure. Um, I, you know, have been interested in it probably from around 2012. Like, you know, I, I just read some stuff on Hacker News about it and I followed it like this is, this is something really cool. And I think, um, since I was living abroad, uh, I kind of had a perspective where I was like, well, yeah, these U.S. dollars are useless in, in China and, you know, everywhere. So um, I think that, that that's one thing that made it click with me. It's like I wish there was some currency that I could just have anywhere. Hmm. That's interesting. And so now that you're at Lightning Labs, what does a network architect for us laymen, what, what do you actually do on like a day-to-day -day basis or what's your grand vision? Yeah. Um, so on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm working on kind of prototyping and uh, helping um, design some of the things that we're working on to help build out the, uh, the routing side of things, the, the routing nodes, and also the, uh, the tools that application developers and services are going to need to create amazing applications. So that, that, that would mean like thinking about in, specific, in specifics, what are the features that need to be built? So. I'm like a um, program manager, product manager type of guy. Um, so uh, I make these prototypes, and then I uh, help with the help develop them out. I'm a you know in a technical way. That's actually a great segue. The fact that you mentioned applications for Lightning, because I have a lot of questions for you about that specifically. What are well? I, all right, I don't want to ask too much at once here. So, what what do you see people doing right now? That's interesting in regards to building applications around Lightning? 
Um, but the most interesting thing to me is applications that or that that are lightning only um, because they really highlight like what you could what you can do only now that lightning is is around um, so like um, Satoshi's place if you couldn't charge like one Satoshi on any on anything else right. it's just such such a small amount it, it can't happen um, so uh, I think those are like the, the the coolest concepts, which which are not like just adding lightning as a payment option, but just saying, you know, we have this new thing. What are new interesting things we can do with it? Hmm. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Anytime I come across like a business model for something that you wouldn't have been able to do before the micropayments of lightning, my, my gears get turning. So what are some applications that you haven't seen yet in lightning that you, you'd like to see or you're trying to work with people to help bring about? Um, well, there's lots of things I think that I would like to see. Um, you know, one thing that I mentioned a long time ago is that um, this idea that we can use the network um, itself as a communications uh, system. So I think, like, in the origins of Bitcoin and all along the way, people have had this idea that we could pass messages along the network. They could, like, I think Satoshi wanted to put in like memo fields where you could like attach a message about, hey, I'm sending you this for coffee or something. And that was really quickly stripped out and decided to be a bad idea because it just is not scalable and it's kind of pointless to, I mean, already we have a scalability problem, but you know, just adding in messages and videos and pictures and stuff, that's, that's, that's crazy. But now that we have this new network, we have a new network where you know only a small set of people are really involved in anything. So... I think we could start to like reintroduce that concept where we can say, you know, there's only like a few people really involved in this. Like, so it is scalable. We could, you know, start to attach more data. And um, uh, I talked about this idea, but uh, Lalu actually made a presentation on this, um, which is uh, this idea. You, you could deliver like streaming data. You could deliver APIs over the Lightning Network completely. Um, so you could like be watching a video and the video data is is that could actually be delivered over the lightning network itself oh wow and you could actually be paying for that uh atomically so that um if they 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 if if they ever tried to serve you a invalid frame an invalid byte that you would not you would not pay for any invalid bytes it just wouldn't wouldn't be possible and that would open it up so that Anybody could serve you this data. You would have to have no reputation, no reliability as far as who's serving you that data, because they you don't need to trust them. Like if if they don't give you the bite you want, you the payment just never completes at all. Not even like in the you know in like one penny's worth of. Interesting. And that actually kind of leads really well into my next question, which was going to be. Do you see Lightning as something more than just chap, uh, cheap, fast transactions for merchants? Obviously, uh, with, with those types of applications, yeah, it's a whole lot more than, than just fast, cheap money, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, I mean, I'm not even sure that's the killer app. It might be. But, uh, and, you know, I think even from the perspective of, like, making payment channels more usable, I think like very simple um you know I, I remember like when the um when there was these you know original mempool issues and i was looking and you know also in my work at bitco like i could see you know there's these mempool issues right and the thing about these issues is a lot of the the traffic on the network is just going back and forth between 
small set of people. There's, you know, they're, they're just using this this resource incredibly inefficiently because they're not bundling their transactions. Um, and so one way you can bundle transactions is you can say like let's let's make payment channels to each other. But because there's no standard for payment channels, like payment channels were, have been possible for a long time, but because there was no standard, nobody wants to. And there were standards proposed, but there was no adopted standard, no tooling. So because that didn't exist, it was it would be impossible to say, oh, exchange A and exchange B and exchange C. Can you guys all like start to use these payment channels to like offload some of your traffic? Even though there there was you know a huge financial incentive for them, like exchanges would pay a hundred thousand dollars a month, you know, just to just to chain fees. So um, I I can kind of see in the future if we can say. Uh, the Lightning Network is multiple, has multiple applications. So one of the applications is just, here's a standard way to do a payment channel. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially, I think you could even see it like a lot of in-house, um, just moving Bitcoin around in-house because these, these big exchanges that have lots of different uh, addresses where they store Bitcoin and then they constantly, they're moving it between different storage mediums. I could imagine those payment channels would be worth their weight uh, in Satoshi soon enough. Yeah, and I mean, there's another advantage also, which is because you have, because money in payment channels is, um, is not owned by you directly. You can say that your partner actually can start to help you enforce policy on how the money can move. So, like, let's say your node was compromised. So, in in one sense, it is a hot wallet, meaning that if somebody took it over, they could start to spend money. But in another sense, it's a hot wallet that's a multi-sig wallet where you can tell your peer. Hey, you know, if I start to behave weirdly, if I start to send money out like crazy, you know, stop it. Don't don't allow me to do that. And as long as they're, you know, a reasonable person who like is running some kind of protocol that says here are the limits of what what the channel can do, um, you would also have to have them be either like doing the wrong thing or they would have to be simultaneously compromised, which could be good for security for for larger amounts of funds. So, yeah, LND is obviously in beta, and it's obviously reckless uh, what what people are doing. Do you have any advice for would-be merchants or adopters of Lightning Network that say, okay, I want to start accepting Lightning payments from my service? Would you tell those people to maybe hold off, or do you have any best practices and advice for them? Um, I mean, I would certainly say, like, I would be pretty cautious about... <laughs> Putting in a lot of money into the network, and you know, go in with eyes wide open. Um, the thing is, like, it's there's a lot of moving parts to this, right? It's not like um, you sign a transaction and then, you know, it's like that's it. There's actually lots of like things you have to worry about in terms of time locks. You have to worry about, um, you know, doing the right thing before the deadline is is hit. Um, that if whenever there's a handoff of like paying out and come and money coming in, you have to make sure that that handoff is good. Whenever uh, you did get paid, like you have to make sure that you got the pre-image. You have to make sure that the backups are all secure. So there's all these moving parts. Um, so I would like if I were going to put in a lot of money, I would really try to have a very strong handle on all those parts. Um, and uh, in order to make that like super easy, we have to build tools to like. And you know, mature the software to such a state where it's like, oh well, all of those things are all proven out. Just like the block, you know, the, just like the Bitcoin daemon, right? The Bitcoin daemon has really been battle tested over ten years of development, 
And now, you, even though Bitcoin daemon is complicated, like we can say, oh, this is like a reliable component in our infrastructure. Um, the same process has to has to apply to, to the lightning demons. Interesting. And so looking forward, um, when do you anticipate like a more like when, when do you see lightning transitioning its way out of beta or is, or is this going to be more like like uh, like Bitcoin where it's, it's going to take a long time uh, and, and we have a long way to go. And maybe you're still waiting on more protocol implementations on on the Bitcoin side, like storage signatures, for example, um, before you'd be comfortable saying that you feel like lightning is is progressing to a point where it, it's more usable. Um, I'd say like the protocol is actually out of beta now because they released a 1.0. So that kind of counts as, I mean, I don't know who's in charge of the beta or fully released labels, but whoever did the bolt spec, whoever decided the bolt spec should go to 1.0 is kind of making a statement that says there's this protocol out there. Mm -hmm. Um, the question is more like, what about the implementations? So some of the implementations like are in beta state, like LND is, is like officially a beta release. Um, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know how, it, how or when it will get out of beta. I mean, obviously that's the objective, but there's just so much stuff to build. Hmm. Um, I'd say like, it'll be, it'll be something like Gmail beta where Gmail was like a beta for a long time. It was totally usable. And like, maybe it didn't work in every scenario, but it worked in lots of scenarios. Um, Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I really would stress like if anybody uses it, especially with a lot of money, that you just you just take time to learn about all of how all of the you know what's actually going on, and that way you can kind of reason for yourself about like um, what am I actually risking? Hmm. That's interesting. And is that uh, do do you know is that sort of the reason for the the cap on? Um, channel size right now when when will be the day when when someone can say route like a hundred thousand dollars in a, in a single transaction yeah i mean um the cap is definitely coming off and the cap that was put on there for a reason being that it's safety of course um i don't know if lightning as a network um will ever reach super high values because as a network, it depends on the not just you putting it in or not just a few people putting it in, but like the greater mass of people putting it in. Mm -hmm. So it's like, when will the internet reach 100 gigabits? Well, like that means that everybody on the internet pretty, like it, that means most people on the internet or a substantial amount of people on the internet are, have 100 gigabit connections. It might not happen. Like maybe like one gigabit is good enough for people. Um, and that's like a market process. So, um, as a protocol, though, you could use it like, like I said, as a standard payment channel, and that you could do, I think, in the short term with large amounts of money between two parties who are saying, like, we're just moving a bunch of money back and forth, like an exchange. So if you if you hooked up like a small number of exchanges, um, they could use it just as like a, a template for the for a payment channel protocol, but they would probably be more like, and they might be connected to the Lightning Network, but I'm not sure that like I would define them as part of the Lightning Network because they would just be, it would be like one Google data center talking to one Yahoo data center, you know, or Microsoft data center or something. Hmm. Like, um, they would just have so much bandwidth that like, um, they wouldn't be able to like, connect to everybody fully, just um, there'd be like, a, there there will be like these, these, pa these pockets of, inf of, of connectivity throughout the network. 
That's that's really interesting. I I was thinking too. You know, it, it almost seems like you're going to have to do some some risk analysis and and some some really careful thought into security if you're considering making really large transactions in Lightning as that cap starts to come off. Because even if uh, the fees like even if the sat per byte on the main chain goes way up from where we've ever seen it before. Uh, it, you know, if you're if you're moving a hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, it might be worth paying that cost of security on the on layer one. Oh yeah, I mean, there's a really good. I mean, we're lucky that we have this synergy because um, Lightning is more complicated and, and riskier than a cold wallet, and um, but it's better at doing small amounts. So and small amounts are you know are friendly towards higher risk because you're like that's a very easy way to limit your risk. Just don't put too much in. And then the simpler way that's um, that uh, is just to use you know a hardware wallet, very cold, cold storage, and uh, make a payment that way. Um, that that way you, you're more you'd be more wor- naturally more worried if you're sending a huge amount of money around. Like if you're sending a hundred million dollars around, then um, you want to keep things super simple and, and constrain everything. And in that case, Lightning actually doesn't help you that much anyway because of that network problem. So they, they work pretty well together. I don't think, I think we can do a lot more in lightning wallets to like bridge the gap as well. So like people actually, I see routes, I see people paying, like I see people routing more money than they should through channels because they're actually paying higher fees on lightning than they would otherwise pay on the chain. And I think, um, that's, like kind of a natural barrier where it's like, if you start to approach the, the maximum size of a channel, um, you should start to overpay what you would pay on the chain because you're actually not getting any efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to just just build up, a, just create a channel, then do one transaction, then close the channel. That like is less efficient. So it should actually be represented as a higher cost. Um, and I think one reason people are doing those type of transactions uh, at the moment is because while it's, uh, not all wallets have done a great job of, of showing you that option uh, of mm. saying like you could actually send it on chain. It will take a little bit longer. Maybe there's some privacy implications, um, but your like actual net fee, uh, it, like from an efficiency perspective, it's more efficient. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I know a lot of people have been talking about that recently. How wallets need to uh, work on on better fee estimation, and and the other thing is too, you know, as especially for the people who are in Bitcoin for the long haul, if you're just moving your Bitcoin from here to there, do you really need it to happen in the next hour? You know, can you not wait six hours or or even? Yeah, a week? yeah. I mean, on on chain definitely could be improved, like regular on-chain wallets can be improved as far as fee estimation goes. Like people, like the confirma- the, the confirmations that we use where, and people get complacent, right? Like, especially when we have this like past one year of where fees were rarely above one Satoshi per byte, mm-hmm. um, people are like, oh, I'll add this feature later where it's like, uh, you know, at some point in the future. And, um, at, but then you get fee spikes and then you find out, oh, we're actually overpaying a lot. Yeah, I think SegWit was a good example of that, where the mar- the market was uh, growing exponentially every single day, it seemed like, and it's still you had all these exchanges that were dragging their feet on, on implementing SegWit. Um, but, and, and even now, like we've still only seen a fraction of the total user base adopt, adopt SegWit implementations. So 
let's uh you were talking about about channel about these these things that you've observed in routing now i know that you run probably one of the biggest if not the single biggest routing node uh, in in the lightning network uh is that is that a fair assumption I don't know if it's the biggest. I mean, I'd say probably Olympic is like the biggest. Okay, but, yeah, maybe uh, not. As far as like activity goes, I think I have a certain niche in the network that um, maybe I'm leading my little niche. Okay, a activity probably a better word than the most active routing node opposed to the largest. Well, I probably don't route the most amount of money. Um, I think, you know, there's also the question of like, does money need to move? So like, you know, like you see on an exchange, like if the exchange sets their fees to zero, then you see huge amounts more volume. And if the exchange increases their fees, then the volume goes down, but it becomes more meaningful. So like, because my node has higher fees than other nodes, you can take a look at my volume differently than their volume and say, well, people really needed to use that node um, versus they were just sending money back and forth because it costs nothing. Okay. And so what, what are some things that you've observed in terms of uh, building out your channel liquidity? I mean, how do you, how do you manage your peers? Are you a, a liberal opener? Are you a conservative closer or vice versa? Um, yeah, I would say I'm definitely like a liberal opener because the nice thing about opening channels is like you can do it at the lowest, like you have a very low time, time preference. So like even if fees are 100 steps per byte, you can just say, I know at some point in the next week or two or something, they'll, they'll probably be lower. And I just feel like opening a channel, but I don't really care too much about when it confirms. So I open a lot of channels like and pay very little because, you know, I don't really care too much about when it confirms. Um, and then as far as closing goes, I really base it on activity. So um, if a channel is not active, then I wait a while and, you know, activity is based on time. And then if time goes on and there's no activity, I close it. And I'm pretty, the thing about the, the peers that I, I think people maybe don't understand is that um, I don't think nodes should really run with more than like a thousand peers. Like you should, you should limit because that, that makes it more difficult to develop the software. Like if we have to develop the, the, the demons, the lightning demon to like, like a Bitcoin core daemon by default, it's going to connect to like eight peers outgoing, maybe let eight incoming. And then you can maybe extend that to say you're going to have a hundred peers, but it's not unbounded. Like you, you can't, you, you don't want to design software that you want to like narrow the scope when you're designing software. So you want to say like the, the number of peers can be between this, this set. And so I think a, a pretty good range as far as lightning demons goes is like, let's say that you can have peers between one and a thousand. Um, and then if you want more than a thousand, you should probably launch a new node. Um, mm -hmm. you should, you should, you should stack thousands uh, or, you know, maybe you can go to a, a bigger machine, but you're starting to get like kind of, um, go beyond the, 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 the limits of what, what the designer should be working on. Um, so like on my node, I try to keep my peers limited. That's, that's one thing that I'm trying to do when I'm closing channels. I'm trying to say, I don't want my node to just be like uh, increasing its resource consumption f forever. So like if, if a node is actually offline, then it's a very low burden on my node. Um, like, uh, but, and the only reason that I would disconnect it is like if it had made public channels and then it was causing routing failures. Like people who go offline should not be creating public channels at all because they're creating 
failures when people try to route through these channels and they don't know that they're that that person is offline. Um, currently, the pathfinding systems don't really take that into account, but I know that is coming, and so um, it makes sense to curate your channels because at some point the users will start to say, you know, that node is not curating its channels, and they'll express that they'll express that demand through their software choices and their software will start to avoid nodes that are connected to a bunch of off like offline nodes so um that's one big reason i close channels is i want to i want to make sure that i'm connected to channels that are active that, that need me to be connected to them and then um that don't go offline that's like my criteria quality over quantity is what you're saying yeah, for sure. And also, I have a minimum channel size. There's there's other issues with having tons of channels. Um, like, let's say you had a Starbucks node, and the Starbucks node said, oh, everybody can make channels with me. Um, and every time you, and if you, if you come and buy a coffee, you can use your channel directly with Starbucks. The problem would be that Starbucks would collect all of their money in you know, thousands, maybe millions of payment channels. But a payment channel money is not useful unless the payment channel is, is like liquid or at some point you aggregate the payments. So if you have like one million channels and they all have $5, you think that you have $5 million, but actually you have, um, you have to pay UTXO consolidation costs to say like, oh, I have these $5 UTXOs that are on the chain. Right? I could close all the channels and then I could get those $5 in theory, but it's not very liquid. Like, um, I have to pay these consolidation costs and if fees are too high, I don't even really have those $5 at all. So what you want is to make it so, so that like you really are leveraging the network effect where each, where instead of like people connecting directly to their vendors, they connect to somebody who is aggregating their transactions. So like instead of me paying, having Starbucks and like Subway sandwiches and um, like Walgreens, like instead of me having these three channels, I have one channel to somebody who's aggregating all my payments and then that person is connected to another set of people who are aggregating payments so that Walgreens can have a f only a small set of channels and that is aggregating all of that money so that when they pay the UTXO consolidation cost, it's a flat cost which doesn't stack as, as far as the more payments come in. Interesting. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it like that um in in terms of of the lightning and in peace with the with the utxo management uh that that's something really interesting that i i think people need to talk about more going forward um so y you mentioned ellen big now i know in the the lightning liquidity telegram there there's a little bit of animosity towards ellen big i mean nobody really knows who he is he opens a lot of channels with everybody and and they don't really seem to be worth I, I don't know the right word for it people almost feel like they're being attacked um th there's a certain attack vector that seems to be rearing its ugly head around ellen big can you talk a little bit about your your thoughts yeah i mean i don't think it's specifically i mean i'm not going to ascribe a motive to it i don't know what the motivations are but um at the stage of the network that we're at today we're at like an immature stage and we're kind of depending on people like we're, we're kind of like growing, growing this network of connections. And the, the, the network has to kind of grow organically because if you just like dump a bunch of channels, 
on the network, they're not set up on the pathways that people actually want to go on, right? You're just like randomly assigning tons of channels with balances just randomly assigned. So um, traf traffic, they're not assigned in the, in the way that traffic is, is going to want to go. It's like if you like went to like a country and you just started building roads everywhere and you didn't like say, oh, do people actually need to go on these roads? Like you would just built roads all, all over the place. Yeah. Um, you would kind of just be like wasting your capital and it could even be just bad because it's like, oh, I don't want this road. And it's like, you know, it's, it's causing problems for me. Um, I think over time, so, so one of the, the, the negative impacts is that there's so many channels that come in and also we're, we're not at a point yet where we have this pathfinding system that kind of like, um, remembers like what paths are good and what paths are bad and what nodes are good at curating and what nodes are bad at curating. We kind of have like a, a scattershot approach to, to, to pathfinding. Um, and L and D will forget all its history about pathfinding after like 30 seconds. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, uh, we're at kind of like a sensitive time right now where, uh, as far as, um, capacity being added to the network it goes um, but that being said I think um, actually LMBIG's channels are actually getting better um, because so LMBIG comes in and he drops in you know a million dollars and then the million dollars is all pointed in the wrong direction it's pointed at random directions it's not pointed in the direction of where capital wants to go but some of his directions are good and so capital can flow in some of those directions because just random odds, he's he's landed on some good ones, and then 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 the problem is nobody's really pointing at him. Nobody's pointing their capital at him, at his nodes. Um, well, that problem like alleviates over time because people notice that oh well, Ellen Big actually does have some good outbound liquidity. He's actually pointed at some good places. He's pointed at some stores that are interesting, and so I can actually create a channel with with Ellen Big, and it can be useful. Mm -hmm. um, it's just like at the start, it's like you, and it also illustrates that not all inbound liquidity is like equal. So like people are like, I got all this, I have inbound liquidity, I have $1,000 or I have $50,000 worth of inbound liquidity because Ellen Big just decided to, to lay that on me. But Ellen Big by himself can't, can't give you the $50,000 of network liquidity. He can give, just give you $50,000 of his own liquidity. Mm -hmm. If people aren't connected to him, then it's just some rich guy who's connected to you and he can spend $50,000 if he wanted to to you, but that doesn't mean you can receive $50,000 from the, from the general network. Right. Um, so it's almost like having a, uh, an eight lane multi-billion dollar highway system between two dirt poor towns with a gas station. Yeah. Yeah. You, that's not, I mean, that's not how you really want to do city planning. It's just like randomly assigned stuff. I mean, it can kind of help maybe like, cause you'll, you might like wind up making an eight lane eight lane highway in the right place. I mean, all the other ones will be abandoned, but one of them might be good. Um, and I would also say it's like it's just confusing for people because it's like um, it's like you're on a network and you're like testing your like network speed. Like, do I have a hundred megabit or do I have a gigabit or do I have one megabit? And you do a network test and you do your network test and your network test maybe is stupid and it's like okay I'll test with the fastest connection and one guy happens to be connected to you like over ethernet and you have a 10 gigabit connection to him but over to the greater internet you only have like a 1 megabit connection so you do the test and you're like oh I have 10 megabit I have 10 gigabit because you have you're connected over ethernet 
But then you actually try to like visit websites and stuff, and you're like, oh, well, actually, I only have one megabit because I'm not connected to the greater network. Hmm. Now, obviously, we would want to assume, hopefully, well, we we would want to hope, not assume, hope that Ellen Big, you know, that he's that he's a good player, that he at least has has good intentions. But uh, there's some people who have raised concerns that. Using like HODL invoice, for example, to to lock up funds for an indefinite amount of time, by being such a large player on the network, he's potentially creating an attack vector where he could dry up network liquidity. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, that's certainly true. Um, although you know, he can't just do that unilaterally. So the way that he, because you can't just drop capital on the network and then use HODL HTLC to to, to do that attack. The reason why you can't do that is you have no inbound liquidity. You can only do that. You can only hold up people's funds if um, they can actually send funds to you in the first place. So that's kind of the major problem with LMBIG is people can't send LMBIG money because people are suspicious of LMBIG or just he's like he's added too much capacity too quickly. So uh, the attack really depends on people assigning their capital willingly to LMBIG. And then the more that they assign willingly to LMBIG, the more that he could carry out this type of an attack. One more um, reason I mean, not to use all I don't think that's going to happen because, um, well, I would not, I would definitely say don't use autopilot on mainnet. Like, that's not designed for mainnet. And I try to tell people don't ever use autopilot on mainnet. I mean, we're working on making a version that will be usable on mainnet, but the current version is like a stub. Um, and it is causing, it is exacerbating the problem because people are using autopilot on mainnet. And the way that autopilot decides, like who to make who to make channels with, is it says who who has the most channels. That's essentially what it says. Hmm. It says who's got the most channels. So, um, Ellen Big is kind of like gaming the metric. Even if even if Ellen Big is not doing it deliberately, um, the fact that they're making channels with everybody is like creating a like that's a problem uh, that I have with any autopilot that uses the graph topology by itself. So if you just look at the graph and you say, I'm going to look at the graph to decide where to make my channels, the graph is something that is like artificial, right? It's like, it just is, anybody can create any graph topology that they want because you can just make, you can just make a million nodes and you can just make a million channels and that can be just one person doing it. And so they can kind of create this graph that looks, you know, like they want it to look. Um, and so that's kind of like what LMBIC is doing maybe accidentally is they're just opening up so many channels that autopilot um, just sees them as like as good, and it's not a totally unreasonable heuristic, right? Because actually, LMBIG is it a lot of times a good way to route. And the more people who actually do connect to LMBIG, actually, as long as LMBIG is doing the right thing, actually the network is getting better and better at routing um, because that's LMBIG's major problem. They need inbound liquidity. Um, yeah, I think this stuff, this stuff needs to mature. We need to get autopilot into a state where um, it doesn't just depend on graph topology, that, um, that it's a bit smarter, um, and that you can just kind of set it and forget it. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really compelling uh, things to consider there in terms of the... the I don't, I don't know what to think of Ellen Big, and I, I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but definitely I, w I would advise people to try to proceed cautiously I, I would say uh, so uh, there's a guy on Twitter I don't know who anyone is anymore because everyone is hodl not now yeah. but, uh, his his handle is at real Ludvig art I don't I don't remember what his original name was but um, 
he asked the question, um, how likely do you think it is that once we see algo bots developing fee markets on, on Lightning, how, how likely do you think we see that just completely saturate other blockchains and actually overwhelm them and, and, and just completely uh, make them essentially useless with, with this layer two scaling solution that we have? I'm not sure I understand. So yeah. like the, the, we get Algobots for fees on Lightning mm -hmm. and then it has an impact on other chains? So yeah, he, he is, he's making the, the claim that uh, the... I can, maybe I can see it with swaps. Like if you do like, so like one way to use a submarine swap is you can say like we have this liquidity problem. Um, the, like uh, let's say I opened up a channel to you and we want I want, but I want the balance on that channel to, to, to switch. I want the balance on the channel for, to go from my side to your side. But I don't want to just give you money. I want to get paid back. So um, that's what I was working on with the submarine swap project, is I would give you the money off-chain, and then you would give me back the money on-chain. And that can't happen completely off-chain, because like, let's say we just have one channel. That can't happen, like, I can't just move the, I can't off-chain, solve that problem completely off-chain. I need to somehow get paid back for the money that I pushed over to your side. So my submarine swap proposal was to like say let's use another system, and so that system can be Bitcoin, and it can be like locked with an HTLC so that like uh, if I pay you that I definitely get paid back, uh, but it doesn't have to be the same chain as Bitcoin. It could be so I also made like Litecoin swaps. I even made Bcash swaps um, so that you could swap. You could you could kind of like use the ability of another chain to settle um, in a temporary way where it's like okay. They have plenty of scarce resources. They have plenty of resources that are scarce on Bitcoin, which is just like they, we can spam their their settlement network um, in order to like uh, move things how we want them to be on in our channel arrangement. And um, I can see that I can see that happening um, more. Although I think with other chains, you pay a heavy cost, which is the exchange fee. So in order to if in order to go between, um, like if I'm doing a, a swap uh, to to re reassign liquidity on my channels uh, on Lightning and I'm on Bitcoin Lightning, um, if I use a Litecoin on chain side of things, then I pay some fee to some exchange, some person. I have to find them and like I have to pay maybe middlemen to like arrange that trade, um, and then ends up at being like a certain percentage cost. So the fee, the chain fees on Bitcoin have to get so high that 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 exchange fee is actually worth it. And then even even then, there's more alternatives. So like, what if I could go on like a side chain, like or you know maybe even a totally trusted system, and I could do the I could do the like I could do it with a third party. I could say like, um, you pay me back on Coinbase, and like Coinbase is just just you know changes out of the database somewhere. Um, or you could do it like with a side chain. So. I mean, that'll be like decided by a market process. It could be the fact, like it could be that it, it increases volume on other chains, but it might be that that doesn't win in the market. Hmm. Thank you. I know I, I did a terrible job of asking that question, so you did a good job of navigating through it. Um, so what about, uh, what about layer three? What, what do you think a layer three is going to look like for, for Bitcoin and maybe even on top of Lightning? Um. Hmm. I would say, I mean, layer three, probably, I don't want to get into buzzwords, but like, I do think that there is more work that we can do 
along like the trust spectrum. So like uh, lightning is, you know, trust minimized, but um, in some ways it's a little bit more trusting than Bitcoin, like the just pure blockchain, uh, because you have things like these, uh, like if you send one Satoshi to your peer, they can't settle that on chain. So they kind of have to trust you a bit or trust in the relationship. You can't take that one Satoshi, but like you could, you could mess with them. So, um, I think we can move farther along that spectrum. Um, and this is one reason I was originally skeptical of lightning. I thought, do we really need a network for small values? Just sending around $5 that is so sophisticated and trust minimizes lightning. Like, can't we get by with something a bit simpler? Like, just where I can just say, like, I'll trust you, like, sending around five bucks or whatever, because, like, you've been around for a long time, and it's just a small amount. So even if you took my five dollars, I wouldn't be too upset. Um, so I think that still can exist. Um, there's, like, this thing called Chaomi and eCash. Um, and, you know, even things like Liquid are kind of, I kind of think of them as kind of like layer three, maybe, mm-hmm. because that's a custodial system. And the custodial system doesn't have to be totally trusted. Like um, eCash has this property where it's like you can just trade eCash around with other people. And the the person who's like the trusted party doesn't really know who is who. So their ability to like censor the payments is limited because they just don't know who has what, like which money is whose. Um, of course, they still have like ultimate ability because they could just say like everybody has to identify themselves now. But um, it's still minimized because just practically it's difficult for them to do that. The same thing with Liquid. Like Liquid actually technically has the ability that they could just say, oh, you know, you don't actually have any money on chain because we're just like, we're, we're initiating the, the, the kill protocol or something. And like the, the, the nodes could go offline and then the, the money would revert back to actually the multi-sig owners, which is what Liquid looks like from the perspective of blockchain. Um, but it would be annoying for them. So you kind of say it's, it's trust minimized. And I think that gives you like actually a lot of cool solutions. Um, but uh, probably um, at lower values, for the most part, at lower values than what Lightning does, or maybe it can work in conjunction with Lightning. Um, it doesn't have to be like, um, and it doesn't have to be totally, like it can be, in, like the trust can just be weird, like this idea of probabilistic payments. So probabilistic payments is like, what if what if we, we said that instead of me paying you um, $1, um, instead of me paying you $1, which is going to cost some fee to, to move over the network, I'm going to uh, give you in a provable way, in a way that uh, I can't back out of, I'm going to give you 1% chance at $100. And let's just agree that mathematically those are equivalent because 1% of $100 is $1. And the advantage of doing it that way is 99 times out of 100, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to make any. I don't have to make any transaction at all because we agree you lost. But one time out of a hundred, I have to send you hundred dollars, and I'll you know. So my fee is like reduced by a hundred. My effective fee. Um, so I think like weird ways to like reduce trust or like manipulate how trust is is needed to like move money around the world. That that can be kind of like layer three. Like that's how I'd see like layer three stuff happening. I appreciate that you didn't just give one specific answer there. You kind of covered, you kind of painted with a broad brush. Um, and I think that that's, 
the most realistic thing that we're going to see because I mean if you look at the way like the internet has developed and we have all these different layers um, of, of development and different tool sets that can be used in different circumstances to fulfill different needs I think that Bitcoin I think we're gonna see a very similar thing happen just like you said yeah and I mean I think lightning wallets themselves will will start to like go across layers so I think a lightning wallet eventually should probably like uh, could start to like use the blockchain like it could sometimes say the blockchain is right for this type of set settlement. So it's right for this payment, and it could also sometimes say the you know the other the other way, which is like Lightning Network is not good for this payment, but we have this other way of paying, and that's that's the be the best at the time. And like um, we're using all these different tools to service the need of the user to move money to that destination. Hmm. Um, so, do you think that it's ever possible that we will see? Uh, People have the ability to open up like multi-party channels uh, through through something like Snore signatures, and then to be able to uh, to change those channels or rebalance those channels or or whatever it is without the aggregate signature of everybody. So like a, a single party and a multi-party channel signing for changing just their portion of the the liquidity. Um, I think there. I mean, we already have multi-party channels because we already have two-party channels. But like, can we get to end party channels, um, or like, and what you're suggesting is more like a threshold type of a channel, where it's like, um, can a small number of people reassign the funds? I mean, what you're doing is in a when, in a channel is you're just like manipulating a transaction, right? That's what your channel is. It's just a Bitcoin transaction that you can like broadcast to the chain. So in order for like there to be flexibility in what a channel can do. It has to like still make sense in term in the blockchain terms like that, and you wouldn't want to make it so like one person can manipulate that transaction to move around the outputs um, too much because like like from the blockchain the blockchain doesn't know about that channel so it's like okay some some money was moved around I don't really know about any any more rules that, that apply within your channel thing I I only see this one transaction um, but I think you can do. Even without Schnorr, we have, you know, Lightning Labs has this project uh, called Two-Party ECDSA. And um, that's code that works right now. You can go and use it to make uh, an aggregated signature across two people, um, where from the blockchain's perspective, it has folded up those two signatures into one signature. And mm -hmm. to an outside observer's perspective or the blockchain's perspective, it looks as if it's just a one-of-one -one signature. Um, and the really interesting thing about those signatures is like there's no real boundary on the the end. So actually, in terms of just speaking from the signatures perspective, you could put thousands of signatures in that one signature, and nobody would know that there's thousands of people involved. Um, so that is possible, um, but you would still need to have, as far as signing goes, you need to have these people. If you just want to follow the normal channel model that we have now. You still need to have these people co-signing off on that that signature so that it looks good to the blockchain, um, and like logically that makes sense, right? You don't want to like have you don't want to like have the state of the channel change without your without your uh, consent. That makes it more trusted. Um, but you could you you could create channels, I think, where you say, um, and this is probably getting more into where the Schnorr can help. So with Schnorr, you can do kind of like threshold signatures that can still aggregate. So you can say like, well, what if nine, what if what if eighty percent of the people are online, and maybe you know twenty percent are offline, 
in that case, the 20% of the people, they willingly went into this arrangement. They knew that 80% of the people could, could, uh, could sign. Or they could pick specific like proxies. They could be like, well, this person can kind of sign for me. If this other person signs for me, you can like play with the signatures. And with Schnorr, I think it becomes easier to do these type of things where it's, um, it's still folded up into this one signature. Um, and even if it's not, you can always make any, you can actually make any channel to do anything as long as that channel, as long as a transaction can go back to the blockchain. Like channels can have, like channels can have any type of script that they want, right? Like as long as we can create something that's signed that we know that we can put onto the chain, as long as you can express it in script, then it can do whatever you want. Um, so I think the question is like, um, when is Schnorr going to activate? Then is there demand for this? Um, how, like how useful it is, is it? And like, does it serve what, like, how complicated is it to implement? Well, that's really interesting what you mentioned about the, the two-party or the multi-party uh, ECDSA that you guys have at Lightning Labs. I'm going to have to look into more of that because uh, I think the potential applications there are pretty big. Uh, so I only have really one more topic I want to get into, uh, and then we can, we can start to wrap this up. Um, wh when do you think that we're going to see sort of a more usable channel state backup, like from the user side, uh, to, to make that process just more easy for, for people to ensure that they're not putting every single Satoshi that, they, that they're holding on their node at risk? Um, well, so in 0 0.6 of LND, we have this new concept called static channel backups. And it's a first step of backups that is designed to be like a foolproof backup. Um, and the way that it works is you have like, once you make a channel, you save a state of it. And this state um, is uh, something that you can back up in a static way where you never need to update that. Um, and that's kind of the problem with backing up channels. The problem with backing up channels is you, you make a backup and then you go your node goes down and you come back online with that old backup and it turns out that that backup is, is out of date and you just don't know about it. And if you ever publish out of date information with your peers, there's a possibility that they can take all your money, um, which is not good. So, um, and that will be adjusted as the protocol goes forward potentially, but that's how it is right now. So static channel backups uh, like sidestep that issue. The static channel backup, they can never take your money the, because instead of backing up all the time, you back up this one time. And what the trick it uses is it actually uses the, the peers uh, state to, to, so you, what you do is you tell the peer, can you please close this channel? And we're going to use your state of the channel, to, which is acceptable to you, to close that channel down. And then um, this, I'm going to, you're going to give me back a little bit of information that I need in order to um, get my get my funds out of that closed state of that channel. Um, so. So since we have the static channel backup thing, I think it, it will make like life a lot easier for people in terms of backing up, um, where you just kind of like get this one big file that's like your backup file, and it's updated. Like LND will just manage that file and will say I'll update it whenever I have a channel, I have a new channel, or I close the channel, and you can keep that file like wherever you want, and it's encrypted, so you can put it on any place, and you wouldn't have to be worried about it. 
And you don't have to worry about an out-of-date version of it. It's impossible to get yourself into trouble with it. Like if you try to restore using it, there's you're not you don't have any of the new information, so you can you you you're not subjecting any of your channels to this reach potential. The one thing, the one thing about it though is that like you need to make sure that um, you're like you still need to kind of it, it puts more pressure on you to have more reliable peers. So you don't want to be making um, like the current state of backup like. This current state of backups pre 0.6 is that you have, um, at least in LND, is that you have a reliable disk. Um, that so you do that with like RAID or uh, on Amazon they have like um, this redundant disk system, um, kind of elastic disk system, which offers redundancy like behind the scenes. Um, you do something like that so that like even if one of your disks has a problem, that the other disk is, is still able to go on. Um, so. Uh, this is like more of a, a generalized system, the static channel backup system, but it, it, it places more emphasis on you being able to reconnect to that peer because you need to go back to that peer and say, can you please force close this channel? And also, can you please um, do it in a way that where you tell me about some state about the channel? Um, and that relates to another problem that we're fixing in the, but requires a protocol fix. So, um, one of the things that people thought about channels, I mean, including myself, is that, uh, you know, because we didn't read the spec carefully enough, we looked at the, the force close channel and we said, once the channel force closes, the money actually goes back to a, like a normal address. It's not locked into a script or anything. It's actually sent to just a normal like pay to public key hash address, like, you know, like everything else. And so we thought, oh, that's great. So I'll just wait for them to close the channel naturally. And then once I see it goes, the money goes back to my, one of my addresses, I'll get my money back. The problem is in the version 1.0 of the spec, it doesn't just go back to one of your normal addresses. It goes back to one of your normal addresses where the key has been changed with this, uh, with this commitment point. So every time you, you change the channel, you're actually mixing it with a random number. You're mixing it with like a nonce. And so because you won't, your seed doesn't have that nonce, that nonce is just something that's random generated on the fly. Um, you even though the, the money um, will be sent to a normal address, normal looking address, it'll be sent to a normal looking address that has a key that's slightly different than your normal key, and the random number is like a gigantic random number that you'll never be able to brute force, and you won't be able to get your money back. Um, so that will change. Um, that's probably one of the highest priorities I think for the next protocol version, um, to just kind of like change how that key is generated. Um, you know, it doesn't require a lot of changes. It's just like, why are we adding in this random number that we don't really even really need that? It was added like preemptively for this idea that you would send your channel state to these watchtower backups and that you wanted to like make the channel backup noisy so that the watchtower wouldn't be able to know like whose channel backup is whose. But we have another way to fix that, which is just encrypt the channel backups. And because the channel backups are encrypted, they can't see what's inside anyway. So we don't need to be modifying these, these keys that they, can, they can't see. Um, so that will make it, the conjunction of those two features, the static channel backups and then um, reliable um, return addresses, like static return addresses. Um, plus there's more things we can do. Like I suggested we would put in like the initial state of the channel into the backup. So just like day one ver version of the channel. And so like if all else fails, you have that old transaction that you can broadcast. Um, although that's not, in the, that's not in there yet. Um, 
I think we're not like static channel backups is a huge, huge step forward. And so if everybody has those, I think we'll total, we'll definitely minimize the amount of like backup worry that you have to have. Wow. That was great. Thanks. That was, that was an awesome answer. Uh, all right. So that's pretty much all the questions I got for you, Alex. I have learned a ton in this interview. Uh, I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show. Uh, do you have any more parting words for the listeners? How can people find you? Where, where can they come and, uh, get in touch with you or just follow what you're, what you're up to? Um, yeah, for sure. Like, um, I didn't talk about lightning loop too much. That's kind of, kind of one of the big, big things I'm working on, which is like submarine swaps. I'm working on a lightning labs, a submarine swap service. Um, I would definitely check that out. Like lightning loop. Um, we have a blog post about it on lightning labs, uh, blog and, um, there's a GitHub repository where you can come check it out and like play with code and do some swaps. Um, we currently have a zero service fee, zero percent service fee, which is pretty cool. And, um, I try to like talk about Bitcoin and lightning stuff every day on Twitter and my Twitter is Alex Bosworth. Um, hopefully I can keep up that, that, um, that flow of doing a tweet every day <laughs> if I can think of stuff uh, about Bitcoin. So that's Alex Bosworth on Twitter. Fantastic. All right. And I'll put links to, uh, the Twitter and I'll, I'll find that GitHub repository and put that down below as well. Uh, all right, Alex, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. All right, guys. What did I tell you? Lots of information, right? Yeah, Alex is a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, I just want to say how grateful I am that I'm getting to do this podcast and getting to talk to so many of the best and brightest minds in Bitcoin and, and learn so much from so many people and share all these great ideas and then be able to take all this information and share it with my listeners. This is just a really humbling experience and just a blessing to to be able to do in, in such an awesome community. If you guys like the podcast and you want to support the show, you can you can find out more about how you can do that over at BitcoinEchoChamber.com. But this show will always be free and it will always be Bitcoin-centric. I'm not ever going to drop a scammy scam on you guys. Or, or go down the altcoin rabbit hole and, and start doing interviews with random altcoiners. We are always going to be Bitcoin-centric here at the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Hence the name. This is the Bitcoin Echo Chamber after all. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. If you can, if you want, you know, drop me a subscribe on, uh, on Anchor. Drop a rating for this episode on whatever platform you're listening to us on. It really helps me out a lot. Thumbs up, stars, whatever, whatever. And, you know, if that's not your thing, I appreciate you listening. I'll see you guys next week.